0: Hi, I'm Tom Melville, and welcome to Voice of Real Australia. Each episode we bring you people, places and perspectives from beyond the big cities. Despite the central role the Bush plays in Australia's founding mythology, this country's history has really been urban in nature, so it's fascinating to watch as decades-old trends in city-bound migration are upended. It seems we're leaving the coast and heading inland for a whole bunch of reasons – pandemic, price, quality of life, a desire for something new, or simply a spirit of adventure. So today I'm bringing you two stories about people who left Australia's densely populated shores and fell in love with the interior, an unexpected outback postie and a couple of Gen Z treasure hunters. John Hanscom is ACM's national roving reporter. He and I visited Whitecliffs, an opal mining town of 150-odd who mainly live underground. It's in one of the most remote areas of New South Wales, right in the corner near the South Australian and Queensland borders. It's wild country, dominated by red dirt and rocky scrub on the edge of Australia's ancient, dried-up inland sea. It's a town filled with treasure hunters and misfits, drawn to the vastness, the harshness, the promise of riches, the beauty and the terror.
1: Just a building that was sitting here Hmm. in that in a very, very decrepit state. And I saw its beauty.
0: Gorgeous. That's Gay Nichols. She grew up in Sydney and spent pretty much her whole life in the city. Whitecliff's dusty main street is a world away from the Sutherland Shire of her childhood. But she's 74 years old now, and this is her home. What, it See? makes you wonder, which is something we've come across as we've been on our journey so far, why it's so under-resourced, I guess? Why people don't... Come know here, about is, it yeah there's more natural riches if you want to compare it to somewhere like Kakadu
1: I'm so glad like I, I first discovered Flinders in the 70s and they have become commercialised hey. fabulous but now very ritzy high class accommodation very much a tourist experience this is authentic this is the real outback this is actually not known about it's a secret. This area, this outback west area of the Paru and the Darling and this area and the history is little known. And that's good. Well, good in one way, bad in another. Because it's a fabulous part of the story of Australia.
0: Gay lives in a marvellous Federation building with a tin roof and wide balconies on Johnston Street, just up the road from the pub. It's the old post office, and she shows John Hanscom and I pictures of the place from the time it was built, around 120 years ago.
1: And it's got a, a room there, which is the dressing room, well, basically cupboards of yeah. sort of clothes. But that's where the coachman used to sleep, when they'd come up. And then the interior was the, was the postmaster's residence. Wow. So, but it's beautiful. And that's the original glass. That's 100 years old, opalescent, you know, that sort of pearly yeah. look very beautiful. And I love the orchids in front of it.
0: Gorgeous. Gay crackles with energy and enthusiasm. She's warm, welcoming, with a motherly air about her. I can imagine her chastising me for chucking a tennis ball inside. She's in love with her home and takes us on a tour.
1: And I just bought the windows and then I had a fellow in Broken Hill put the glass in. It's gorgeous. Now every window is a picture and, you know, you look through and you see the cassia out there and You see the grapevines in the summer and then they turn red and you see those through the the glass. So the glass is really a feature. And in the mornings when I wake up, it actually comes through that window and those red...
0: The house is pale yellow on the outside with steep roofs and wooden gables. She bought the house in 2007 for around $100,000. She spent at least that peeling back the additions and quirks layered onto it over 120 years.
1: I wanted to create beauty... Beauty and peace and harmony, beauty. I wanted to make something beautiful, and it is, huh? It is, it's a creation, and I'd never done anything like it before. Like, I, I have a medical research background, so I'm nerdy. Head, not heart. This is heart.
0: The cladding around the chimney in her living room is a perfect example.
1: That was all covered with plaster and had a mantle, and it was all cracked and broken and we had to get the plaster off because it was all flaking off and that was underneath incredible well, look you can even see this is opal rock see this potch up here. Isn't that amazing of course and it was all covered up like a proper i'll show you what well, you saw in the bedroom like a chimney with a mantle and so each of these chimneys are like that underneath
0: a beautiful seam of ocean-coloured white cliffs opal runs through the rough-hewn red stone used in the chimney. There is treasure hidden out here.
1: I'd lived in Sydney the whole of my life and Montreal to do postgrad work and I didn't know anything beyond Dubbo. So came out on the Indian Pacific to go to the Flinders Ranges, saw Broken Hill and thought, ooh... There's so much heritage. It's the only complete heritage city in Australia. And that's because Simon Molesworth lives there and he was president of National Trust. So he got the whole city, minus cottages, all the funny things that have happened, heritage listed. So that town will be the same forever. And what a part of our story, because that's BHP, yeah. the Broken Hill. And the Slag heap was the Broken Hill.
0: Wow. Jay's background is in scientific research. She was a member of the team which developed the cochlear implant for kids who can't hear.
1: They went from the most easy to the most difficult, which was a child who'd never heard. She was deaf from birth. The others had all heard, and all the other patients after that point had all heard before. So the breakthrough was a child who'd never had hearing, hearing with the cochlear implant. She was six, and it went all around the world. It was televised the switch on which I did I had to work out how to set the electrodes with a child who had no language to understand what we were doing.
0: We take it for granted now but that was earth shattering stuff in the 1980s.
1: We were all crying obviously the nurse was like oh god she was waiting to hear her mum talk and she was talking to her it was incredible it was the most mind-blowing thing you could imagine.
0: That little girl is called Pia Jeffrey, and Gay always wondered what came of her. She was born deaf, and doctors thought she'd never learn to speak. Recently, Gay saw a documentary in which Pia was interviewed.
1: It went to the presenter coming towards the camera and Pia coming towards him to these chairs, and he said to her, (laughs) "It's It's nice to meet you, Pia. And she said, It's nice to meet you too couldn't believe it.
0: Like it was the most talking, nor- normal thing in the world. Talking
1: beautifully. And then she sat down and had this full-on conversation with highly intelligible speech, highly developed language, and found out that, you know, she had gone on to do a science degree and works in the Bureau of Metrology. Even though she began language at six, beyond the critical period for language development. You meant to develop language between birth and six, right? She started at six. Could it happen? It did. Amazing.
0: But that was a past life, her city life. A life that imbued her with a tremendous sense of possibility. Who else would look at a century-old tumble-down outback post office and see an oasis in the desert? Did you consider doing the mail runs before you bought a post office?
1: No. No. I didn't even know what, what they involved. No.
0: Did this place come with the mail run and you sort of... No,
1: there was other another man who was doing it and I got a phone call from Broken Hill saying he hadn't turned up. So can you send someone out to do the mail run because he hadn't turned up? And he'd been doing it for 30 years and I thought, crap, what do we do? And we didn't even know what the route was. So uh, we just started doing three mail runs within a week and it was all trial and error and that was exciting, very
0: Things escalated after that initial phone call. For the past decade, Gay has been an outback postie.
1: Uh, From here, it was 400k out there. Just a short one down to Wulkania, three times a week. That one was two days a week and that took me across the Paru. And then there was another one down to Ivanhoe in that area. So I'd go down to Ivanhoe and come back different ways. So it's the largest shire. And I did the largest runs, and they were the most difficult runs in Australia. Big outback adventures. There was a lot of guys here who wouldn't take them on. I thought, yeah, I think I can do this. And here I am, this dotty old lady trooping out there. (laughs) Five days a week. It was five days a week. Three half days, two full days. Three and a half thousand K a week. In outback conditions. (laughs) Amazing stuff.
0: So when you're out on those lonely roads by yeah. yourself, what's going yeah.
1: through your mind? Ten hours. Mind? Oh, um, enjoyment. It's, you know, just a wonderful experience. I was always four-wheel driving, so I'm challenged, you know, I'm going in and out of creek beds and, and getting bogged and having to change wheels and all those things that happen when you're out there. But I also listen to podcasts. <laughs> because your mind just goes on a journey and I'd take my dogs, these two have been on every run with me and uh, you pull up at mailboxes and you, you leave their mail and I was on a, a, a journey in my heart and mind as well as a physical journey. So it was very, very um, enthralling.
0: Gay was given access to a whole universe and its characters most Australians only hear about in snatches of bush poetry you develop relationships with the people along Very the
1: run. Very much so. Sometimes they'd come and meet me just to have a talk and say, come in for morning tea, so I'd go and have a chat. And they all knew my progress around the run, so if ever I was stuck, say, fixing a tyre or something like that, they'd be on the phone saying, have you seen Gay yet? Where is she? She must be between you and me. There was this massive, massive network out there of care. Isn't that lovely? These isolated people who sometimes they were 90 kilometres away from each other. I would spend 90 kilometres to get from one place to the next. Massive. And they sort of followed me around. So I was part of a network. Hey? And they relied on me. I took all, all sorts of things, you know, motorbike parts and groceries and everything. Everything was a, it was a privilege.
0: We experienced a bit of this bush telegraph ourselves on our trip out to western New South Wales. Station owners would send us on, letting their neighbours know we were coming through. You are connected out here, part of a thread which stitches the outback together. Her postal service is over now. She's on to new things, writing. The woman can't sit still. She's writing about her life as a pioneering scientist in Sydney. She could also fill volumes with the memories and stories of her time in Whitecliffs, what she refers to as the most wonderful period of her life. I wonder if (laughs) John here has mentioned the fear that I think the Australian psyche has of the deep outback. west. Yeah, the outback. Mm. When you're looking out over that Dead Sea, do you get it? Do you feel that too?
1: I was definitely frightened when I first came out. In fact, to get from Broken Hill out to here to come and see this place, which I saw in an advertisement in the Barry Daily Truth, post office for sale, I thought, oh, and it said Heritage Building... And I thought, I'd better go and have a look. I was frightened to get in my car and drive three hours to get here. And I said to them, well, you know, I've never done this before. It's a big adventure. I'm leaving at this stage. How long will it be? You know, if I don't come, will you come looking for me? I just had no idea. And to go from that level of, of fear of the unknown... To, <laughs> to spending 10 years just driving out there and being part of it. and I never, ever felt that I'd be left in isolation. There was always a safety net. The people do that.
0: Would the place
1: work if that didn't happen? No, because it's isolated and it's frightening. And it you is know.
0: properly dangerous.
1: If yeah, yeah. You can die if you're stranded out here on a 45-degree heat day and you're out there, which I have been, and I had my 90-year-old mother in the car and some wire, fencing wire, had wrapped around the main shaft and it stopped the car, right? So I had to wiggle under the car and saw this great thing of wire holding the main shaft. And it was very, very hot because it was 45 degrees and the sand that I'm lying on was very hot. So <laughs> I'm under the car thinking, crap, this is horrible. Um, and I got out and I made, I made uh, a phone call to the police, triple O, you can get to them anywhere. And I said, I have a problem. And they said, they'd send a helicopter um, because I only had limited water. And you've got two hours before, you know, without water, in that heat, and you'll die. So um, they said they would send out help, and I got back under the car and I got my trusty wire cutters and I started clipping away (laughs) and pulling bits of wire, clipping pulling bits of wire. It took me about half an hour, but I beat them. I got it out before the helicopter had to come. Now, that's happened several occasions where I got lost one time too or I've been um, stuck and I've had to backtrack and it's taken me four hours to get home and things like that. Yeah, there's a safety net.
0: Is that emotion that we just saw, is that gratitude?
1: Yeah, just wonderment. Wonderment. that I've had so many... extraordinary times, uh, experiences of being saved. You know, danger...
0: What's stuck with her is the pace of life out here in this ancient landscape.
1: Time and space hit you in a different way and you have to adapt. You have to work. Like, the the space and the freedom, going out there into sort of this endless space (laughs) and then seeing it and all of the changes, you know, when there are spring flowers and when it's in drought and when it's in rain and... and, Yeah, so I've become very connected... To the space, the place, and to the freedom of the of the time. You know, you're not constrained by time. You're not in in tight routines. You're not sitting in traffic and getting to places. There's there's much more time. So, have you had happy woman before? I never have,
0: oh. hmm. but I'm excited.
1: Well, it's a it's a combination of. Um, ice and Galliano, this beautiful yellow Galliano, and vodka and orange juice. Lovely. We'll have a taste you coming
0: to Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Gay Nichols, the unlikely postie in her Whitecliff's home. The house really is a treasure, but Whitecliff sits on top of a treasure of a different kind opal. It's the only place in the world you can find pineapple opals, fist-sized hunks of jagged, crystalline opal, the colour of a cloud-strewn sunrise, and sometimes worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. There have only been a few hundred recorded finds, and in the past the unique formations were broken apart and sold for their opal weight. It was only relatively recently that opal hunters recognised the value of these rare objects. The allure of treasure is strong in Whitecliffs. It must be. Because miners can spend years underground in cramped conditions, sleeping in tin sheds through cold desert winters or sweltering through 40-degree days with not a huge amount to show for it. A big find is out there. You just have to keep moving dirt. I'm told it's an old man's game. So Gen Z treasure hunters Jay and JC buck the trend. They're 24 years old and came out from the coast a few years back. Since then, they've succumbed to opal fever.
2: Opal forms as water travels down through the earth millions and millions of years ago water collects silica from places such as sandstone and then that sandstone well that silica rich solution sorry is deposited into cracks voids and fissures in the earth which then over a long period of time of this repeating it eventually hardens into opal that's jay sullivan
0: he actually grew up around here his parents were miners too, but moved to the central coast for high school he's showing john and i around his parents opal showroom the red earth opal cafe He's tall and has the air of a tour guide.
2: The other things we're looking for are specimen pieces or things that can be kept as just a specimen. People collect this sort of stuff. This is a bit of wood. So you can see just in the end there, there's like a little bit of a green purple flash. So that's basically just like opal that's pulled on the outside. You can kind of see the concentric rings in the wood as well, obviously turned to stone. The
0: fossils he's showing us are millions of years old from a time when this desert was an inland sea. The shell in his hand has been replaced by shimmering flashes of blue white opal. John asks him about it. What's it like coming across something that is so ancient?
2: I mean, what does it feel I like? I mean, it's pretty cool, like when you do discover something. Like the fossils are always really awesome. These are probably three of my favourite just here, which are not too hard to tell what these ones are, just being shells. But opalized pipi is pretty exciting. Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean, we find shells, and it is such a rare day to find one that's intact and that has colour. Most of them will just fall apart, or they'll be what we call skin shells, which just don't have a solid opal going, like solid opal going all the way through them. But, yeah, I mean, it's super special to find these things. Like, it's, we found maybe two or three of these our entire time out here, and we're always looking for more.
0: Jay came out here first, then sent word back to his friends on the coast about what a wonderful time he was having. He wooed them with the promise of riches. they become millionaires. James Caruana, known by his mates as JC, followed soon after, and he's here to stay.
3: A lot of my family think it's really, really crazy doing all this, and whenever I go back to very, very close with all my family, the big family events and that, everyone's just kind of like, wow, how are you doing that? How's it going? And I'm sitting there from the other point of view going, wow, how are you guys all doing your day-to-day life? How how do you guys put up with doing this it's just you know they think I'm mental and I think they're mental
1: <laughs> so have you succumbed to uh, opal fever
3: absolutely within that first like year that was just it you know and it was we're living out here on the field pretty pretty bloody destitute you know we don't have running water and we have to start a Jenny up if we want power but you know when you go down and dig and when you find some flash in the ground and find some color it's insane it's just like we had a pretty good find recently, and that was just like, holy moly, like look at this. This is just stunning color coming out of the ground. It doesn't take much, you can find one little bit. And like, like the other day when I was walking around, just kicked a random shell and I was like, holy moly, this is what I can find here and this whole field is just full of secrets kind of thing, you know? And if, if we're out here and we do the digging, we can find it. Do you want to be opalized when you pass away? Hey, that would be the dream. If I get stuck out in a hole out here, you know, just bury me there, and then in a hundred million years, you know, some space humans will come along and find me all opalized. Maybe all opalized teeth, <laughs> or opalized eyeballs. That'd be that'd be the one.
0: When you think of an opal field underground dugout, I'm sure you're thinking of dim, dusty passages with jagged walls and a musty, fetid air. But that's not the case. All of the dugouts I've visited have been beautifully appointed and somehow well lit with wonderful ventilation. The people of Whitecliffs take pride in their subterranean dwellings. The Red Earth Opal Cafe is no different. It's all light and mirrors and lovely jewellery behind glass cases. But as Jay explains, he, JC and the absent third amigo Noah do not live like this. You mentioned that you're um, living pretty destitute. You're not living in here. This is quite a nice place.
2: Yeah, so I mean, the cafe probably makes it look like, you know, it is pretty nice. Yeah. But yeah, again, this is just mum and dad's place sort of thing. Um, the boys and I, we have our own tin shack on the field, I guess, which is pretty, um, pretty... How, how would you describe our living situation out there?
3: We live with a lot of pets. We have a lot of <laughs> pet mice, <laughs> a lot of pet flies, a lot of pet mosquitoes.
2: How do you deal with the heat? I don't
3: really know. <laughs> the last... No, the first year, me and Noah took a TV down into the mine to watch the footy grand final, you know, like we... we it's just too hot. It was like 40 degrees that day or something. We were just going, God, this is, this is ridiculous. But, I don't know, we go back around mid-November. We go back to the coast and then, you know, live on our spoils over there. <laughs> nah, not not really, but we do go back and spend, you know, the good parts of summer.
0: These guys are fine with the rough lifestyle, though or at least happy to tolerate it for the tantalising prospect of Opal Riches, they plan to expand into new territory outside Cliffs, unexplored ground.
2: So we're out here at least for, you know, the next five years, you know, at least. That's sort of our thing. Like, we want to be definitely hitting the millions in the next year or two sort of thing. I mean, every year, it's their goal is to just hit the million dollar fines. But obviously for the first two, three, four years of any business, you know, that's the hardest part when you're growing your operation. We came out here with... jackhammer each got started and this year so two and a half years later we've got over $100,000 worth of gear all paid for by uh, the opal we found sort of thing and then you know by the end of the year we want to you know keep expanding keep growing and then eventually you know get out there find new opal deposits even away from Whitecliffs a little bit and uh, you know try and pioneer new opal fields.
0: I can imagine that if it's rough out here in Whitecliffs it's going to be a hell of a lot rougher out there.
2: Yeah, so if we were to, you know, get out there and explore, which is, you know, our ultimate goal at the moment, it would be a lot more rough living. Like we'd be camp style, pioneer lifestyle kind of thing, just out there in the scrub, pretty much 24-7, either mining or thinking about, you know, where you're going to go the next day and dig and that sort of thing. So, yeah. That sort of sent a shiver of anxiety up my spine. I don't
3: know. I reckon it's like the most exciting thing ever. That prospect that you could be the ones to find it. And all it takes is a little bit of rough living.
0: The guys are keen to show us their mine, which is on the oldest commercial opal field in Australia. You can see hundreds of abandoned mines, remnants of the opal rush of times past. From above, it's a honeycomb of craters in the white soil. Miners dug straight down, tossing the spoil up around the hole. Many have caved in over the decades, so tea trees and scrub fill the entrances. These past miners were looking for something different, and often overlooked stones which are today quite valuable. Jay tells me about someone picking up a discarded opal off the ground worth $10,000. A big find could be under the next shovel load of soil, which I guess is part of the addiction. Or it could be fool's gold.
2: I saw something glimmering in here. Yeah, so just bits of gypsum. So not quite the uh, thing we're looking for, but you'll see lots of that throughout the mine.
0: That must be... Yeah, you you see a little bit of a
2: sparkle. You think i found opal, but unfortunately it's just gypsum. I think they do mine it for fertiliser and that sort of thing in other places, but just not in the quantities we find here.
3: In the beginning, when you're learning to get your eye in, it gets bloody annoying.
0: It's almost pitch dark down here without torches. The ground is loose and every footstep sends up clouds of dust. We're wearing hard hats, a piece of kit JC tells me you only forget once. It's a labyrinth down here. They've got some impressive machinery. A big digger worth thousands of dollars, which scrapes out long slivers of rock face. Seems like a blunt instrument, considering they're looking for such delicate material.
2: Generally you will break onto the opal, so you will break the first bit, and then you'll stop and slow down and then dig it out with a bit more precision. So you'll be using things like screwdrivers, you know, and small digging tools to actually extract the opal once you find it. But we can dig for months at a time, even years at a time, people will dig and find nothing of commercial value, It is a process where you do have to move a lot of dirt, so you're not going to worry too much about breaking the first little bit. Um, Once you do break the first bit, then you know to stop, slow down, and take your time with it.
0: Further into the mine, we come across someone else's tunnel. Jay and JC reckon it's probably 50 or 60 years old. Whoever it was lacked a key tool for any opal miner. Luck.
2: You can see just here where we've broken onto older workings. So We've come down the mine. There was, you know, obviously about this much dirt, so what's that... Nearly a foot worth of dirt between us and that other mine. And as we came down here, on the other side we were digging and JC found about, what, five grand worth of opal? Just in between the wall. So the last miner that was down here was a foot away from finding $5,000 worth of material. If they'd just gone that much further, they would have had it. That's the allure of opal mining. It can be just that much further. Is there a risk Mm
0: -hmm. that your opal fever will absolutely cook you? The temptation's always there to just keep going.
2: Yeah, so the temptation's always there to keep expanding. You could very well do that, and then you could make a full open mining empire, I guess. Like, you could get several drilling crews, you could get several excavators and have a multi-million dollar operation. You could also find, you know, no opal at the end of the day, Um, and just go, like, bankrupt sort of thing. So you definitely want to find a balance and just want to find something that suits your lifestyle. If you're enjoying what you're doing, then that is your life. You know, like, you are having a good time. um, You know, why would you stop if you're doing something you love?
0: When I picture a treasure hunter, I imagine a solitary, superstitious prospector. But for these guys, their friendship has been a key part of their success. It's surprisingly welcoming here in this dark and dusty tunnel. These two are mates, and it shows.
2: We're a really good team. Like, we've been doing this now for over two and a half years. I don't think we've had really even a single fight or a single argument or, like, really anything. So we work really well together as a team. It is sometimes a solitary job. We do hear some, you know, really bad stories where people have partnered up and then, you know, Opal's gone missing or, you know, they'll get something, they'll take it home, put it through the Tumblr, and, you know, maybe the material just wasn't that good, but it looked really good coming out, and then one will think the other person's stole it or something like that. It is a lot about doing it with people you trust and, you know, doing it with friends and, uh, you know, just having a good time. Like, we don't take it too seriously. We like to have a lot of fun.
0: But I'm not convinced they'll ever be able to say goodbye properly to their hunt for buried treasure. JC isn't convinced either. Are you ever going to be able to... You know, it seems like it's like a drug. I mean, you get your next big find and then you're able to buy a bigger drill and move more dirt. Are you ever going to get to that point where you're like, all right, we have now got the equipment that we need... To start making money. No, it'll just so keep think- going
3: up and up and up forever. We're going to be 80 years old with these giant, big, insane machines. Like, all right, we can do it now. <laughs> Would you be able to stay out here if it weren't for your mates, do you reckon?
2: Probably not. I mean, it's it makes it so much easier to be out here with other young people, you know, giving it a shot, especially, you know, if you're good friends. A lot of the town is just older people, so it is primarily made up of retirees and then the occasional hobby miner. Apart from JC, Noah and I, there's barely any other people our own age out here. Every now and then there's, you know, backpackers that work up at the underground motel. But, you know, again, with COVID lately, they've kind of all left, so.
3: There's no young miners, it's just, just us mining. I and, mean, you know, Jamin's dad's like the next youngest person for us. Wouldn't be cool to see a lot of more younger miners giving it a go, but I think, it, you know, it's just too, it's too full on and there's no guarantee. So people just don't, you know, don't really throw risk at all for it. <laughs> See, that's just blue Something Something really, It's really quite thin.
0: Good mates, Outback Opal Hunters Jay and JC speaking to John Hanscom and I in their Whitecliffs Opal Mine. It's such a wonderful part of the country. If you ever find yourself in far western New South Wales, make sure you stop past. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. If you'd like to share your story, email voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Australia. Follow me on Twitter at tommelville124. Voice of Real Australia is recorded in the studios of the Newcastle Herald. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Our intern is Ethan Hamilton. Special thanks this week go to Dion Georgopoulos and Doug Dingwall. Our editors are Gail Tomlinson and Chad Watson. This is an ACM podcast.